Hey, good morning, Life Church. Thank you so much for clicking in, downloading in, um, podcasting in, however you come to find this message this morning uh, in this interesting circumstance we find ourselves in. Um, We're grateful for your presence. We're grateful for the ability to gather uh, in this at least small way through technology. Again, just just want to say uh, we're grateful for the opportunity to at least carry on some sense of normalcy in the midst of a time that is very, very different than any of us have probably uh, gone through. I'm going to be continuing our series, 71 Words, um, and uh, I put some time and thought, and we all had discussed, you know, should I give a message or uh, should we engage a conversation on our present circumstance, the coronavirus and all that it entails, and um, I just feel like in the midst of all the information and everything that's flying round about, um, it's better to carry on and continue with where we are and what we're engaging in. Uh, just a few words uh, about our circumstance. You know, uh, the landscape is quickly changing. Um, just a few days ago, there were a handful of um, people with the noted coronavirus. Uh, and this morning I read that there were over 50 in uh, Virginia. And of course, these things are to be expected with more people being tested, the reality of science being what it is and people becoming aware. Um, these numbers are going to spike. They're going to go up. Um, and so uh, we just need to continue to walk in faith, uh, manage those fears that we have, um, and also carry on with thoughtful uh, wisdom. Um, you know, at this time, there's a thin, almost indivisible line between those three pieces, living in faith, living in fear, living in, in thoughtful wisdom. Like, like many of you, I'm sure I find myself wanting to shake my fist at this threat and carry on as if nothing has changed, while in the same moment, finding a yielding and submitting with those very same hands uh, turned open for prayer to God and in support of others. Um, you know, there's a bishop, Episcopal bishop, a diocese of Lexington. He said this, and I just want to share it with you all. He says to his region of believers, he said, I humbly invite you to practice a Lenten fast from public worship, meetings, and social gatherings in our churches for the next two weeks as an act of love toward your neighbor, especially the elderly and vulnerable. You know, I think it's important to be aware that it's not just you. And recognizing that other people with varied circumstances of life respond differently to this uh, illness as well as as others. And everything's new. We're coming to discover different uh, things every single day. The fact of the matter is, though, that faith, fear, and thoughtful, prayerful wisdom all live in the same room. They live in the same room of our hearts. And managing the moment we're in takes a lot. I'm reminded of the story that I've shared with you all many times when I was learning to drive my father wouldn't let me turn the ignition of the car, the 1980 Volvo station wagon, um, until I said I was driving a weapon because he wanted me to honor the moment. He wanted me to honor the responsibility that was present um, in, in driving a car, not so much for my own safety as well as for the safety of others and what effect I, my presence, could have with those around me. Um, And so I think in the same light, we need to consider not just ourselves, but also those around us, truly leaning into the acknowledgement of community. Um, Yeah, so 
Anyway, enough about the coronavirus for the moment. Uh, let's continue leaning into our conversation. I want to remind you all of the books that I have been suggesting. Um, the Good and Beautiful Life by James Bryant Smith is a wonderful exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. N.T. writes The Lord and His Prayer. I'm going to read from that this morning, as well as J.I. Packer's Praying the Lord's Prayer, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dallas Willard's um, Hallmark uh, book, Divine Conspiracy, is another one. And why, Christoph, do you talk about these books so much? Why don't you just talk about the Bible? Well, these these books are all really foundationally, they find their footing in the scriptures, um, but it helps me to understand. It helps me to uh, derive more fruit and wisdom as I use these resources to continue to unpack all the wisdom, all the fruitfulness that is in the scriptures. Uh, so I want to encourage you all to, well, even as you're listening to this at home maybe or somewhere else, you can go right on Amazon, click on something, and within a couple of days these books would, would be at your doorstep to read. Um, so I just want to continue to encourage you all to do that. I've, uh, as an aside, never done this type of recording before, so you can hear some bumping around probably, some rustling of papers and uh, we'll just we'll, we'll figure this out together forging into uh, a new future all right well let's just read our hallmark scripture this morning if you want to read along with me uh, you can as has been our custom the last few weeks um, otherwise i'm just gonna uh, read this passage uh, pray then like this these are the words of jesus our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power, the kingdom, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, as we continue in our series, 71 Words, I want to reiterate the frame of our conversation that, that we're not settling around the solitary, myopic forms of prayer, just that this is something that we pray with hands folded, but from the disciples' inquisition towards their own observations of Jesus. When they ask him, they say, Jesus, teach us to pray, and when he responds, says, pray like this, that word pray that they uh, both are using isn't just how they are asking. It is uh, entreating God. It is folding of the hands and crying out and and praying as we would naturally know it to be but it's also how do you will in your life how do you lean in your thoughts and in your circumstances and so the title of our conversation of these last few weeks and into uh, the this Lenten season towards Easter 71 is not just how we pray but their words showing us how to pray think dream interact be human because again, as these disciples are asking Jesus this question, teach us to pray. It's not just the activity of prayer, but it's also the activity of life and circumstance. It's, hey, you're a rabbi. What's your perspective? How do you lean? How do you will? How do you choose? And so in our worshiping Jesus and witnessing to the world around us, Jesus draws a line in the sand of our lives, separating us from the past while also pointing us to ways and means forward to a new future as well. This reality that Jesus is God while also offering us a way to go. He saves us in an instant. As Paul the Apostle writes in Romans chapter 10, that all we have to do is believe it in our hearts and speak it with our mouths and we may be saved. At the same time, we work out our salvation incessantly. Paul, again, 
writes in Philippians 2 about salvation, but he says that you would work out. He challenges people to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Uh, It's a both and reality. Jesus as God and Jesus as the way to go. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your presence in this place. Wherever we are, whatever season we find ourselves in, um, we, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for the calming, clarifying, healing presence of Jesus. And we just ask that you would continue to mold us, shape us, make us more into your image. And in this current uh, season that we find ourselves in, we ask for uh, uh, just mercy. We ask for physical healing. We ask for people's emotions uh, just to be lifted up and uh, help us navigate these uh, uncharted waters, uh, these unfamiliar days with a very, very familiar God. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you're taking notes this morning, uh, we are working on words uh, 13 through 26. 13 through 26. Uh, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, many would kind of break that up. I want to kind of roll the second, uh, the two-thirds piece of it. So we're going to talk about your kingdom come, and then we're going to talk about your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, together. So, uh, your kingdom come. These are these are loaded words for a first century rabbi. Your kingdom come. Remember now, this is not just a guy talking. This is a this is a person in a very specific circumstance. They're intriguing words. When someone would say your kingdom come, they're intriguing words in our democracy-driven day and age. But at a time in Jesus's time where Space and government and rule is steeped in tyrants, Caesars, and monarchies, which rule by consolidating power, engaging brute force, delivering domination and, and, and humiliation through constant violence. These words from this, this carpenter-turned-rabbi are freighted with incredible meaning and massive implication. In the world, in the very specific world that Jesus is living, he is constantly reminded that he is not Lord of his own life, that King Herod is ruler. And then they also have Caesar, who's ruler over King Herod. And both of these entities are historically known for their violence, for their massive ability to control through force. The Romans themselves are the ones who are... uh, Crucifixion has been developed as a tool, not just of punishment, but as of control to incite fear. And so we have to understand that these words, when Jesus says, your kingdom come, are incredible in terms of their implication. Jesus, this Jewish rabbi's usage of another's kingdom, not Herod's, not Caesar's, but your, speaking of father, another's kingdom and their imminence, your kingdom come. This language is not just poetic, it is subversive and and dangerous. There's a theologian that I've come in contact with uh, through his writings by name of Gilbert Beleskian. And uh, I want to read something from a book, The Eternal Current. Uh, Aaron Nequist is the author. And he's writing of Beleskian. He says, uh, Beleskian is a legend in the Chicago area. Born in Paris in 1927 to Armenian refugee parents, he served in the French army and then moved to the United States to teach theology. After returning from the Middle East a few years ago, one of my friends asked Dr. Beleskian, Hey, Dr. B, 
What's, what do you think would happen if Jesus walked into Jerusalem today? The 85-year-old educator, theologian, and mentor to many closed his eyes for a moment and finally whispered in his thick French accent. Jesus would probably do now what he did then. Take care of the poor, speak truth to power, and get himself killed. Nequist, the, the guy who's detailing this interaction, closes with, Now, may we go and do likewise. I would just encourage all of us, as we live in our day and age, and we have such a nearsighted view of what it means to follow Jesus and what it looks like in our cultural context, be careful if you're following Jesus for temporal victory. Temporal victory meaning success and overcoming in in very specific and nuanced areas of life, which oftentimes can fall under the heading of getting what I want. You may, as you follow this Jesus, find yourself, as I have too, with expectations and hopes and dreams that aren't wrong, but I find myself in a different venue altogether than what I was expecting. Packer writes in his book, Praying the Lord's Prayer, The kingdom arrives with Jesus. Indeed, one might say that as Son of God incarnate, Jesus is the kingdom of God in person. His rule over Christians is regal in the full-blooded biblical sense, personal, direct, and absolute. His claims are the claims of God overriding those of man. Yet, his rule is not tyranny. For King Jesus is his people's servant, their shepherd and champion, ordering all things for their protection and enrichment. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, he declares in Matthew 11.30. And so how do they enter this? The Gospels answer that question fully. Why? By becoming Jesus' disciples, by giving him their hearts, loyalty, and letting him reshape their lives. By receiving forgiveness from him, by identifying with his concerns, by loving him without reserve, and giving his claims precedence, over all others. In short, by manifesting what Paul called faith working through love. Faith that acknowledges and embraces Jesus Christ as in Peter's phrase, Lord and Savior used throughout 2 Peter. Packer continues elsewhere, to pray your kingdom come is searching and demanding for one must be ready to add and start with me. Make me your fully obedient subject. And so for us, these words, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. We often would pray these or think of these as an affront to a circumstance that is not going the way that we want it to go or not going the way that we thought it would go. And I'm not saying or suggesting that we shouldn't employ these beautiful words in that beautiful way. Yes, they are indeed for us, but they are also and foremost to us. Your kingdom come. Keep in mind, Jesus does not come from a tradition that value talking for talking's sake, not like ours. Opinions of people dominate the discourse of our day. 
the pontification of social media that everybody has a platform, everybody has a pulpit, everybody has something to say, and so we should listen. The culture of some meetings. Have you ever been into a meeting at work and uh, those who work at the church, please don't text in and say, yeah, I've been to those types of meetings. I try very hard not to have those types of meetings, but have you been at meetings at work or, or volunteer groups where you sit and you talk for 30 or 45 minutes and nothing is accomplished, no courses set for the future, no goals are, are thought to be hung as as targets for us to hit but you just talked for 30 or 45 minutes or an hour or plus and then the leader of the meeting says well i think we've done we've done a lot for today let's be done and they all walk out of the room and you may be sitting there thinking all we did was talk jesus does not come from a cultural context that believes talking is something His tradition deeply intertwines discussion and determinations. Laws with actions to live. Think the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. These are not things just to talk about and philosophize over, but they are realities of how we are to walk out of our bondage and into our breakthrough. Or maybe even in John 1, that Jesus is the Word made flesh. How the Jewish culture their rhythm runs with Sabbath, not just for themselves, but also rest for the land. Historically, understanding that Sabbath is not just given to people, but it's also given to the farm and to the land and how agriculture is supposed to work. There was a rule within the Jewish tradition, the year of Jubilee. Now, there is honestly no evidence that they actually adhered to it, but suffice it to say they adhered to so many other things, I imagine that they would, but this notion of year of Jubilee that every seven years, everybody's debts would be forgiven. Everybody would lay fallow in the soul, so to speak, and everybody would have a release. You can find this uh, law and tradition in Levitical uh, writings of the, the, the scriptures. N.T. Wright adds to this, He says, Jesus' followers didn't think for a moment that the kingdom meant simply some new religious advice, an improved spirituality, a better code of morals, or a freshly crafted theology. They held to a stronger and more dangerous claim. They believed that in the unique life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the whole cosmos had turned the corner from darkness to light. The kingdom was indeed here, though it differed radically from what they had imagined. Your kingdom come. Yes, we can aim that at our circumstance. We can direct those, those words towards the way life is going. But they are also, and I would add once again, foremost to us. Your kingdom come in me. And he even adds to this, volumizes it, if you will, with this next phrase that I'm going to put together. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, he's speaking to his disciples. He's offering this way of praying, leaning, willing, entreating. And he's always speaking to your is not us. It's not you. It's not me. It's our father. It's the father of us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This ideal and realm called heaven emerges once again, it is the first phrase that we meet when Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. And it emerges once again here for us as Jesus continues framing 
how to pray, how to dream, how to imagine, how to be human. Again, I would remind us that heaven is not this place far off, soon or or after some other circumstance. It it is a plane of existence now. Heaven, in Jesus' context, is where things are as they could and should be. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a blatant, pregnant reality here. Earth and heaven can merge. This is not earth and then heaven. There's no transitioning or staging in terms of matriculation. This is heaven and earth somehow at the same time. This is heaven and earth in synergy. Nothing here is about leaving earth for population in heaven. There's no language for passing on. Actually, quite the opposite. The language is towards bringing something in. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's there's no escapism here. There's no let's kind of get together and stay out of. There's there's actually investment. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the fact of the matter is this resonates with the whole of Scripture. Even in the creation narrative of Genesis... So God created man in his image and he blessed them and he said to them, Now be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These are words of actually invasion, investment, going into the world, going into the earth. And then we see in the book of Revelation chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We see this from the beginning of the scriptures to the very end. Not earth going to heaven, but actually the reverse. Not escaping, but rather investing. Right uh, from his book, The Lord in his prayer says this, For Jesus' first hearers, the prodigal son wasn't just a timeless message of repentance and forgiveness. It was rather the story of the new exodus, the liberation of captive Israel. But Jesus, in telling this story, was not issuing a call to arms in a struggle for liberty. He was explaining why he was constantly celebrating the kingdom with outcasts and misfits. Somehow he seemed to be saying through his strange work, The kingdom was appearing, even though it didn't look like people had imagined. This was how the captives were being released. Wright continues, He frequently explained what he was doing in terms of a shepherd rescuing lost sheep. He told stories about a king or a master returning to his servants to see what they were up to. Jesus spoke and acted as if he was called to embody not just the return from exile, not just the defeat of evil, but also astonishingly, the return of Yahweh to Zion. And again, to reference what he spoke about in the prodigal, it is the father who runs out to meet his son. Yes, the son has a moment of repentance where a a baptism takes place in terms of his thinking changing. There's a baptism of repentance where our thinking changes and where we are going our own way, there's something inside of us The Spirit of God pulling and tugging upon us where we finally yield and turn from our own way 
and go towards our Father. But we never, listen to me, we never earn, achieve, or work our way all the way back. It is within the baptism of repentance where we think differently that our Father recognizes us and runs out even as the prodigal son and the Father meet together. And so it's not an escapism. It's not us leaving where we are. It's us making ourselves available so that the Father, who's always looking for us, as the story of the prodigal son would communicate, the Spirit of God that's always hovering over us like in the creation narrative and the chaos, it's the Spirit of God who's coming for us. And we are to respond to Him. That's kind of the second portion on earth as it is in heaven. I want to speak to this fascinating word that Jesus used, your will. The mention of will is fascinating because it seems to allude to the ordering we previously mentioned. That God, our Father, Father of us, is indeed in charge. He is the one who rules. He is the one who reigns. He is the one who is responsible. But God himself offers to us the opportunity to engage along with him. Not of some separate disembodied spirit, but rather, again, through participation. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It means, of course, that the will of our Father, Father of us, is available to us as a part of us. James Bryan Smith comments on the will in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, which we offer as a group here at Life Church uh, from time to time, hopefully on a regular basis when we can find leaders to lead it. But he says this, he says, the will is more like a beast of burden than simply responds to the impulses of others. A horse does not choose where to go, but goes in whatever direction the rider tells it to go. The will works like that. You know, as an aside, this is me talking now. We don't, we think, well, I've got strong will or I've got a weak will. And James Bryan Smith, the author of these words, is saying, look, it's not a matter about a strong will or a weak will. It's about understanding the will goes the way that we encourage it to go. He says the will works like that, continuing on. He says the three primary influencers on the will. And when he says that, he's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of what we may think or feel, there are three primary influencers on the will, and they are the mind, the body, and the social context. The mind, the body, and the social context. He continues, The will is neither strong nor weak. Like a horse, it only has one task, to do what the rider that which is directing the mind influenced by the body and the social realm tells it to do. Therefore, change or lack thereof is not an issue of the will at all. Change happens when this, the influencers, are modified. The good news is that we have control over those influencers. When new ideas, new practices, and new social settings are adopted, change happens. We cannot change simply by saying, I want to change. Man, wouldn't that be awesome? Right, church? I want to change and boom, it just happens. He says, we have to examine what we think, our narratives, and how we practice our spiritual disciplines. And I would add as a caveat to that church, 
the things that you do in your life, those are what you practice. The rhythms and habits of how you communicate with your spouse, how you engage with your children, what you do, what you read, what you look at, what you allow into your life. These are the practices. We think too often that we are just, well, this is how I am. No, this is who we are choosing to be because that's the news site that we go to and that's the Netflix movie that we keep turning to and that's the the alcoholic beverage that we have too many of. And it's, well, this is just who I am. No, that's who you are choosing to be and letting in and then that creates and also who we are interacting with, our social context. James Bryan Smith finishes with this thought. He says, if we change those things, and we can, then change will come naturally to us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, even as I said with those first words, your kingdom come, yes, these are words for us to engage as an affront to our circumstances as they're coming upon us. But also and, and foremost, they are words to engage who we are. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These words of Jesus are beautifully poetic. But they are not only for illustration. They are instruction towards our personhood. To be who we are intended to be. We should pray, we should lean, we should entreat and ask God and also expect for ourselves, your kingdom come, our Father, Father of us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, this is not a place of far off, but a plane of existence of how things could be, how things should be, and that could be and God offers us as reality. And so I'd like to encourage you today, church, in the midst of our very different set of circumstances where we find ourselves, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And let that first be directed at our hearts, at our thoughts, at the way that we are choosing to live. And again, these are not just words for illustration, but I believe instruction, allowing the Spirit of God to engage us right where we are. We love you so much. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather, at least in this way of of communion and commonality. We're praying for you. Again, check out the website. There's 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 a link if anybody has a need or things in this season that we can serve you in. We'd love to do that. But let me leave you all with our common exit, a benediction, a blessing. May we come to believe, be emphatically persuaded, that heaven is angling to engage us in our earth, his presence and future in our here and now. May we follow Jesus in his mercy, by his grace, and through his loving, empowering presence with this marvelous invasion of heaven on earth. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better. We always love you so much. We'll see you soon.